You're listening to Sermon Audio from The Shore Church, located in North Vancouver. For more information about The Shore, head to www.theshorechurch.ca. Well, good morning. It's my pleasure to be here with you this morning. I was here, I think, just over a month ago, but there's a lot of faces I don't recognize, so I'll introduce myself again. Uh, My name is Freddie. I serve at Northview Community Church in Abbotsford, uh, and I'm the young adults pastor there. I used to be the small groups pastor, but we've had some staff shifting around, and and that's uh, my role now. Uh, I I love serving the church. Uh, I grew up in the States and then moved up here nine years ago, met my wife, got married. Now, eight years together. Uh, Last week, August 2nd, we celebrated eight years together. Got one little guy and number two on the way. God knows what it is, I do not, uh, but they'll join us in October, Lord willing. I'm gonna continue in the series today in Ecclesiastes 8, so if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. We'll go one to 15. I recognize chapter eight has 17 verses. I'm leaving the next two to Jer, he can preach that next week. If you uh, like action flicks, right, you might like the genre of war movies, and maybe you're not. Maybe you're a very faithful Mennonite, and you won't even watch violence on the screen. Uh, I, myself, I grew up in the States. I enjoy a good action movie, and I love Saving Private Ryan. I love Black Hawk Down. Uh, So when Hacksaw Ridge came out, I was like, yes, I'm going to love this too. Uh, And I did. It was a great movie. Uh, But Hacksaw Ridge was very different than your typical war movie because it followed the story of a guy named Desmond Doss. Desmond Doss is a Seventh-day Adventist, or was a Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, and the, the movie was a fiction, or non-fiction with some freedoms, retelling of his story as he served during World War II. And as you look at Desmond's life, uh, I think one thing that you can recognize throughout the entire movie is that Desmond was constantly not in control of his circumstances. Uh, He didn't choose that World War II would start. Uh, He didn't choose that he would get drafted. Uh, He didn't choose that his platoon would hate him. He didn't choose to miss his wedding. At several times throughout his story, there are moments where you're like, man, this guy has just had a rough go. Like things are out of his control. Things should be different. Why is it the way it is? Uh, As you look at Desmond's life, I think we're reminded when we compare our life to it, we may not have lived through World War II, uh, but we are constantly not in control. There's so much in our life that is not really up to you. We wake up, and even the day isn't a guarantee. And then you go through the day, and you have no control over what traffic will be like or what the weather will be like. You just go through your day hoping everything works out. And sometimes it doesn't. So what helped Desmond all those years? And what could help us? I think a very simple idea. Uh, If you accept what the Bible teaches, that everything is in God's hands, I think you can make it through the day. I think if you read Ecclesiastes 8, you'll start to see this picture that everything is in God's hands. As we look through the passage, we're going to see three things that are not in, in our control, and then one thing that is. And ultimately, everything is under God's hands, or is in God's hands. So Ecclesiastes 8, starting in verse 1. And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. 
the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what to do or what it is to be, for who can tell how it will be? No man has the power to retain the spirit or the power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All of this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity, because of the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this is also vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So long passage, a little bit philosophical, but I think in this we see three things that are outside of our control. The preacher, who the author of this text, is reminding us there are three distinct categories in life that we don't have much of a say over. Government, morality, and then death, or life and death. Uh, as a reminder, we're in Ecclesiastes. This is a wisdom text, and in general, wisdom texts are trying to communicate general truths. This is not always true. We do have some say, like in our context, we do have some say over the government that is in place. We do have some impact on life and death because of modern medicine, but in general, these things are ultimately outside of our control. The reason that this passage is written, the reason that all the wisdom literature is written, is because we need to know how to live. We've, we live in a world that's gray, that's murky, that's messy, and we react to it. So as we react to the world, how are we supposed to live? So there's three things here, government, morality, and life and death. So the first one, the first thing that is outside of our control is who is the king. You don't get to choose who the king is. In the preacher's context, no one chose him. He had it as a birthright. And you just live in the king's world. Solomon was the most majestic king in all of the history of Israel. So the preacher, Solomon, is reflecting on the, the reality that in their time, kings were given a birthright. You were born in the right family, you had the right last name, and then you took over for your dad. Solomon's own story was that as he took over, that he wasn't even the, the next one in line for the throne. God worked through circumstances to bring Solomon to take over the throne. And then God made some promises to Solomon as the nature of his reign. So if you read 1 Kings 3, you can turn there, or it'll be on the screen. 1 Kings 3, verse 12 and 14, we see what God promises Solomon. Uh, Behold, I now do according to your, word, to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all of your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So in, 
this story is, it, what happened before this passage that we read, is Solomon prayed to God, God, would you give me wisdom? I'm a young man. I'm about to rule all this great people. Can you help me know how to live? Can you help me lead this country? And God responds in the passage I just read and says, not only will I give you wisdom so that you're the wisest man ever, I'll also give you all the stuff you didn't ask. I will make you fabulously wealthy. And if you read through the next chapter, 1 Kings 4 describes a fabulously wealthy man. Uh, it, it, if you read through that chapter, in a single day, King Solomon's household, so the people that lived in his palace, so him, his family, and then uh, the people that served there, they would consume 6,000 kilograms of flour, 10 oxen, 20 cows, 100 sheep, and a variety of birds every single day. Like, that's just their normal Tuesday night. You and I make meatloaf. You and I make casseroles. They had that. This man was fabulously wealthy. That was just a normal Tuesday night for him. If you read through the rest of 1 Kings, 1 Kings 10 records uh, the Queen of Sheba, so queen from another country, traveling hundreds, thousands of miles to come visit this man simply to hear him talk. He was so wise, so well known that people would travel when they did not have trains or planes. They had to walk by caravan. And she traveled for months just to sit in his presence and hear him lecture. So when God says, I'm going to give you wisdom and I'm going to give you all the things you didn't even ask for, Solomon had, all, had everything. And when Solomon, reflecting on the role of the king, says that it, you don't really choose who's in control, that person just happens to be there, he had firsthand experience. He was himself the king, and he lived in a world where he had unlimited power. If you go back a couple thousand years, for us, we live in a, in a democratic age, but for most of human history, that was not the case. They believed that there were people who, because of their family lineage, had a divine right to rule. And not just a divine right, but they would often claim that they, they were actually descended from the gods. So if, if you were to look at the writings of the pharaohs of Egypt, they would often claim that they were descended from Ra, from, from one of their deities. If you read through ancient Near Eastern literature, you would see that kings took tremendous liberties with the people under their care. So the, the Epic of Gilgamesh is a very old story, one of the most ancient stories written. And it records the story of Gilgamesh, this man who is a king and travels and gets into all kinds of adventures. He is described as a terrible person. And one of his favorite things to do is he had what, what is called the rite of prima nocta. It, that's Latin for the rite of the first night, where he would go and he would say, that person or this person, give me your wife. I'm going to borrow her for the night. So kings in the ancient world could do whatever they wanted. Like, no limits. They had the power of life and death over people. They had everything. Solomon looks at the world around him and says, yeah, this is just the way it is. It's not great, but it is the way it is. And when you look at that, it is hard not to feel a little bit powerless. It's hard not to feel a little bit hopeless. Because the reality is, if kings have the power to do whatever they want, and in our world, if governments have the power to do whatever they want, uh, power can be abused. And that's the first thing. So the first thing is government is out of our control. The first problem with government being out of our control is that power can be abused. Verse 9 said, man has the power over man to his hurt. And we see this in our world. People hurt other people. People in government make policies that hurt other people. 
a, a recent example. Uh, Brittany Griner, if you're familiar with her name, she's an American basketball player, plays in the WNBA. Uh, she just got sentenced two days ago in Russia to nine years in federal prison, not here, but in Russia, for carrying weed or cannabis. Uh, I'm not advocating for the use of cannabis, but it is pretty crazy that someone can go to jail for nine years uh, for something that in this country is legal. So you, you look at this and you recognize that government has the capacity to inflict tremendous harm on other people. They make policies that don't make space for stories. They just are a blanket thing that applies to all people. That's a small example, but I think it shows that government does indeed have the capacity to hurt. My, my personal experience with being hurt by government is my first parking ticket. And I, it doesn't quite, one of those is worse, right? Nine years in prison, parking ticket. Uh, I grew up in the States where we had different rules around parking tickets. I lived in Abbotsford for the last, last nine years, and I go to a physiotherapist office that they built this brand new tower. It looks very nice, but they did not make enough parking stalls. So you have to get there super early, like 10, 15 minutes before your appointment, or you end up parking on the street or in the, like across the road, there's a, there's a save on. So you can park there, but then you gotta walk like eight minutes. I'm not trying to walk eight minutes. So I parked on the street. Uh, there was a fire hydrant there. So obviously you can see where the story is going. Uh, apparently, apparently, the rule is that a fire hydrant cannot be parked within 10 feet on either side, or I guess three meters, whatever the metric is. Uh, but the sidewalk is not painted, and there is no visible sign. So the fire hydrant is away from the road, like on the other side of the grass, not visible. So I just posted up. There's this huge empty space. I slid in, I parked, I went to my appointment. Uh, when I got back, there was a parking ticket, obviously. I parked in a fire hydrant zone. Uh, but there's a number you can call to dispute the claim. So I took pictures of the scene. I was like, this is where my truck is, and look how far the fire hydrant is, and this is an injustice. So I went and I made my phone call and I scheduled a call back. And when they called me back, I made my argument. I'm like, there was no signage. Uh, the curb was not painted and the fire hydrant is like 10 feet from the, like, from the street. Like there's no way it can be seen. Uh, and to which the police officer or bylaw officer very nicely said to me, uh, none of that matters. The rule is what the rule is. If you park within 10 feet of a fire hydrant, that is a ticketable offense. You have a wonderful day. And I remember being mad. Like, I was like, oh, no one has suffered as greatly as me in this moment. Not even Brittany Griner. But that story is a tiny example of the frustration we feel when we see a perceived injustice. In what way is it fair that the, the, the rule in Abbotsford is that nothing has to be signed? So I'm like, well, what if people don't know? They're like, should have done better on your driving test. I'm like, well, what if there's a car in the way and you can't see it? You should look where you're parking. You're moving a motor vehicle. Those are the rules of the road. It, the rules are what they are. They're just a bit harsh. And in that moment, it didn't matter what I wanted. It didn't matter what my circumstances were. I was stuck living in this world with this government. And that's a small example of the hurt that can be inflicted. But we see this in our society all the time. There are rules, and they are what they are. And if they hurt you... Oh, well, the rules are what the rules are. Government has the ability to hurt other people because authority can be abused. 
But wisdom literature is meant to teach you how to live in a world outside of your control. So verse 5, wisdom teaches us how to act. Verse 5 follows with, keep the commands. Uh, If you obey the laws as much as you can, you don't run into problems. So if Freddie had taken the time to learn the new driving, or to read the the manual for driving in Canada, I probably could have avoided that. I didn't bother because they speak English here and they drive the same side of the road, so it's basically the same thing. But I set myself up because of my ignorance, because of my laziness, I set myself up to be hurt. If we keep the commandments as often as possible, if we put in the time to learn what we must do, we can avoid a lot of the challenges. Uh, Brittany Griner, if she'd read the, the, the rules in Russia, she would not have been carrying cannabis. If I'd showed up early to my appointment, I could have not parked on the road. One of the ways that we can avoid problems is by simply learning what the laws are. Another way we can avoid problems is by not taking our stand in evil causes. That line comes from verse 3. And the reality is if government is outside of our control and government can impose its will on us, then we should work to avoid being a part of groups or movements that we can't fully support. So I'll give you a few examples. Uh, One of the saddest things for me is uh, I I have a friend who's a very intelligent man, Christian pastor, uh, and loves being on Twitter. And he'll, I I live on Twitter through him because I don't want to be on there. Uh, And he will, so he'll share things with me. And one of the things he shared was a recent debate between two people where the, the punchline or the, the point of the argument was that Christians are terrible people online. They just say and do mean things to other people, uh, which is, it's a sad thing. It's a sad thing to see that the reputation of the church is not sterling. Uh, and part of it is people's ignorance. They just don't know what Christians believe. But part of it is that Christians will just jump in whole hog onto something without fully knowing what that thing is or what that group stands for. So in the States, I'll give you one example. My examples are American because I like to follow American politics. Uh, They are equally present here. I just didn't want to offend anyone, so I'd rather share stories from the States. So I'll give you two two recent examples, or recent-ish. So January 6th, right, there was a a protest on Capitol Hill. People ended up marching into the Capitol Hill building. Uh, There was Christian people that spoke favorably about this event uh, because they were like, it is an exercise of your freedoms, of your freedom of speech. And that's well and fine if that's their view. They can say whatever they want. But when you say it online, it is out there for the entire world to see. And there are people who were involved with January 6th that believe terrible things or did terrible things. So when Christians say... I'm on board, I love it, I think that's a good thing, and they say it in a tweet that is on the internet for every single person to see, the appearance is that Christians are taking their stand in an evil cause, the very thing the preacher warns us against. The same is true on the other side of the political spectrum. Uh, As a response to the death of George Floyd in the U.S., it was about two years ago, there was spontaneous protests all across the U.S., and one place that saw a a really, really big one was in Seattle, where a group of people created what was called the, the CHAZ, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. They made this little space where they declared, we're our own thing. We're leaving it behind the racism and systemic injustice of the United States, and they made their little 10-block utopia. And there were people, well-meaning Christian people, who were like, man, racism is a terrible thing. 
we should totally support these people like acting out and, and advocating for a better world. And they said that on Twitter, on Instagram, on, on whatever social media. And that's out there for everyone to see at the same time as basically every night someone's being killed in the chats because there's no police presence. So you, you have well-meaning Christian people, nice, good, faithful Christian people that will share their opinions in a very public forum and they'll throw in their hat with a bunch of other groups that they have no idea what these groups are all in about. Ecclesiastes warns us, if you, like, don't take your stand in a cause that is evil. If you take your stand in a cause that is evil, like, you might bring yourself trouble. In, in this case, trouble in the court of public, uh, public opinion. But the warning is still valuable. I think the warning is still good for us today that there are lots of things Christians should be publicly and vocally in support of. Right? There are things like uh, pro-life, uh, the March for Life, or pregnancy care centers. There are things that Christians, when you publicly sing the praises of them, those are good things. There's nothing there that you have to be embarrassed about. Christians are pro-life. So the reality that we are not in control of what the government says, the government can impose its will on us, this wisdom literature reminds us, well, you can, you can still live in that world. You can not just survive, but you can live in that world if you learn the law and don't take a stand in what is evil. So that's the first thing that's outside of our control. The second thing is morality. Morality is outside of our control. And by morality, I don't mean our morality. I mean as a, as a society. Uh, if, if you were a, a Jewish person, then the thing that was supposed to govern all of your life and then all of the world, really, was the Torah. And if there are passages in the Bible, so like Psalm 19, verse 7, that this law leads to life. That was the, that was the view of, of Jewish people. That was Solomon's view, that if you know this law, it will lead to life. So people should follow God's law, and that will lead to a better world. The reason Solomon knew this is because he was commanded to not only know it, but to actually write his own copy, to memorize God's law. So Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 to 20. When he, so when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so he may continue long in his kingdom and his children in Israel. So, the king, in this case Solomon, was supposed to know the law, was supposed to read it, was supposed to write it, was supposed to study it. So, and the purpose of this law is to make a better world. The reality, though, is that Israel constantly failed. If you read the prophets, you'll see this. So Isaiah 1, 4-6, so speaking about the Jewish nation that was supposed to have this law, taught to them by their kings, taught to them by their priests. He says this, Isaiah looks at Israel and says this, Sinful nation... A people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. Which I'm like, that's a great way to make friends. Uh, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. 
Isaiah reflecting on the state of Israel saying, you guys don't do what God says. And when we look at our world, we could say the same thing. Our world does not live according to God's law. Verse 11 is where the preacher clearly says this, the heart of men is set to do evil. We live in a world where people do what they want. And if you're in my way, I just run you over. I don't want to get caught. As long as I don't get caught, I can do whatever I want. That's the world that we live in. And the preacher knows that. And the response to a world that has morality fully out of our control, a world that lives not according to the will of God, that reality is a frustrating thing. We look at that world and we see that constantly. So let me give you an example. Uh, in our own hearts and then in the, the broader society. Uh, when you know, you're walking and you see a freshly sown lawn where people have seeded grass and they've marked it and there's the sign, do not walk on the grass, what's your very first thought? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take one step. I won't walk on it, but I can, I'll put my foot on it. Or maybe I'll jump over it. Right? We, there's something in us, right? The heart is set to do evil. And we see it in little examples, but it's not funny. It's not quite cute when we see it in the broader society. So one of the most famous uh, was Lance Armstrong's blood doping. If you don't know who Lance Armstrong is, he was a, a professional cyclist who raced in the Tour de France, which was a bike race all through France. And he won seven times in a row. He like beat cancer to come back and keep racing. And this guy's story was super inspiring. If you remember those yellow bracelets, the Live Strong, right? Everyone wore them. You should not. Every single person had a Live Strong bracelet, right? His story was so inspiring because this guy did it the right way, and he beat cancer, and he was amazing. And throughout his races, occasionally there would be a teammate that was like, hey, this guy, like, he, like, cuts corners, hey? Like, there are things he does that I'm pretty sure illegal. And there were two teammates that Lance Armstrong had, like, kicked off the team, because they were willing to be honest and say, hey, like, this guy's cheating. He's doping. He's taking performance-enhancing drugs. And it wasn't until he was done racing, years after he was done racing, that he finally got called to account and got stripped of all his titles. But in the moment, as he was racing, as his teammates are getting kicked off the team for being whistleblowers, we see what the preacher is talking about. The world is not a moral place. And when you try to play by the rules, when you try to live according to God's will, but you're surrounded by people that don't, it is a frustrating experience. You feel powerless. Life feels so unfair. That feeling of unfairness, it's not unique to us. The scripture reflects on this. David, Psalm 73, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Like the people that cut corners do really well and they get away with it. And David says, I was envious. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Uh, they never miss a meal. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They're living the good life. Lance Armstrong was living the good life. And the preacher looks at that world and says, that is, it's not great. That's outside of our control. We don't control how other people act, but we do respond to it. So how should we respond to it? Again, verse 5, right? Wisdom teaches us how to act. Uh, verse 5 connects to verse 12. Verse 12 uh, reminds us that it, it is well to those who fear God. 
or it will go well to those who fear God. The problem with our life is that people can do bad things and they get away with it temporarily. They get away with it for a time. Right? Verse 11 says the sentence is not executed speedily, but it will be executed one day. Right? The, the time comes where you have to give an account for the things that you did. For Lance Armstrong, it didn't happen when he was racing. It happened when he was done racing. But for every single person, that happens at the end of your life, where you give an account, like, which team was I on? Did I follow God or did I do what I wanted? The warning, the promise in Ecclesiastes is, even in a world that is fully out of control, you can still fear God, and if you fear God, it will go well with you. There is a reward at the end of your life in that you get eternal life with God forever. So, again, government out of our control, morality out of our control, but wisdom teaches us how to respond. The third one, the last one is, that is out of our control is life. Life and death. When you rise, when you sleep, when you're born, and when you die. This has been the reality in the entirety of the scriptures. When you look at the story arc of the Bible, this hap- begins in Genesis 3 and continues until the end, until Re- Revelation 21 and 22. Revel- or, sorry, Genesis 3.19. This is after Adam and Eve have sinned, after they've been given punishments from God. We read this line. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In that story, Adam and Eve sinned against God. They disobeyed him. Morality, right? Gone amok. They did not live according to God's words, according to his commands, uh, and they were held accountable. They were given a punishment, which for them meant that they would labor in, in vain or labor in pain for Adam. Childbirth would be pain for Eve. Uh, and then for everyone, they would die. So every single person since Adam and Eve has a day when they die. And it's not something you can put in your calendar. It's not something that you can plan. It's not something that you know when it is. It's just something that happens. You are made from dirt and you return to become dirt again. Right? The problem that the preacher is reflecting on is that death comes for every person, regardless of how you lived. You're a good person, you're a bad person, you're a happy person, you're a mad person. Every single person ultimately will die. Verse 8, no one can retain the spirit. Right? You, you will face death one day. No one has the power over the day of death. Verse 8. So what is the response? Right? Wisdom teaches us how to live. Verse 5, wisdom teaches us how to act. Verse 15. Eat, drink, and be joyful. Live the life you've been given. And in one sense, you look at that and you're like, is that real? Like, that's the solution. Like, you just told me, I'm going to die. And the world, it, like, the government does whatever they want, and people live like they want, and I'm going to die. So I'm feeling a little bit of existential weight. And the solution is to eat, drink, and be joyful. That feels like a bit of an undersell. What do you mean? eat, drink, and be joyful. I think eat, drink, and be joyful does not mean party. I think eat, drink, and be joyful means like just live the life you have. I, I, just this last week, I was in Atlantic Canada, first time I'd been there, uh, which I realized there's a difference between Eastern Canada and Atlantic Canada. Like you get to Ontario, which is Eastern Canada, and then there's a whole bunch of Canada that's still further east. And I was able to show my American ignorance by saying, I love Eastern Canada. And I was corrected. 
very aggressively by the, the church planter who was there. He said, this is Atlantic Canada. And I said, oh, the Maritimes. He's like, no, that's a different thing. Atlantic Canada is the whole thing. Maritimes is like these three islands. So I looked stupid, which was awesome. Uh, and as I was there, uh, all the, the organization we were visiting was called Mile One Mission. And they have this vision of they want to plant churches within reach of every single Canadian in Atlantic Canada. Uh, and if you go over there, there's not a lot of evangelical Christians. And they have these t-shirts where they have the, their logo. And when one of the guys, so not the lead guy, but one of his associates was walking away, I, he turned and I saw the back of his shirt. It had three phrases. Serve, die, be forgotten. And I was like, wow, that's a, that's a pretty cool slogan, man. Like, where did you learn that? And he said, well, we didn't make it up. We're not that clever. Uh, there was a man who founded the Moravians, Nicholas Zinzendorf, and they were one of the big missionary groups, like in, in the 1500s, 1400s. And this group of people would carry the gospel to new people groups. They would pack their belongings into coffins because you're going to need one, right? Everyone dies. Uh, and they would ship them to everywhere, to all of Latin America, to Africa, to the Caribbean. These people ate, drank, and found joy. And this man serving in Atlantic Canada says, that's what I want my people, like the people that serve with me and the churches that we plant. That's what I want the attitude of those people to be. You're not here forever, and while you're here, you serve. And then you die, and then you're forgotten. But the person that you serve remains. And there will be people that will still be here in a thousand years if the Lord has not returned, and they'll still be serving, and then dying, and being forgotten. So when, when the preacher says, eat, drink, and be joyful, I think this is what he means. He means that all of us have different circumstances. We have different family situations. We have different work situations. We just have a particular life. And your life is different than everyone else's. And in that life, you can choose to serve, die, be forgotten. Or you can cling to whatever it is that you have. And in the end, you, still will be, you will still die and you will still be forgotten. So the question is, what do you do while you're here? Eat, drink, be joyful. Serve. So... Government, morality, life and death, all of these things fully outside of our control. And we're not the only people who face this. When you look at the life of Jesus, I think we see these themes in his life as well. That he was at the mercy of the government. He was at the mercy of the immorality of people around him. And ultimately, he also faced death. So we see this in his sham trial by the Jewish Sanhedrin. He, that was the governance system in place. The government in his day gave him a fake trial and sentenced him to execution. He, the people who had him killed plotted his murder, which if, if you know the Ten Commandments, commandment number five is thou shalt not murder. So you had religious leaders that were part of this corrupt government that plotted a murder, right? They were immoral people. Bad, or government out of his control, morality out of his control, and then ultimately he died on a Roman cross. 1 Peter 1, 2 reflects on this. 1 Peter 2, 23 and 24. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
Peter's reflecting on the life of Jesus, and he might not be using the exact same categories as the preacher in Ecclesiastes 8, but we see the same themes at work. In a world outside of your control, what you do control is your response. And the way Jesus responded when he faced the world that you and I face is that he trusted God. So if, if we read Ecclesiastes 8.15 one more time, I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Ecclesiastes will say, commend joy. Proverbs says, fear God. In 1 Peter, he says, entrusted himself to the one, or entrusted himself to God. There are different ways of saying the same thing. The one thing within our control in a world where we don't control the government, we don't control the morality, we don't control the day we live or die, is who we trust. And the phrase I used before, right, is everything is in God's hands. If you believe that everything is in God's hands and your response to that is one of trust, then in the twists and turns of life, you can say, well, this was hard, this was unexpected, this was surprising, but I was made for this moment. Because that's not the way we normally respond. The way we normally respond, even as Christians, is life takes a turn, and we respond with worry, right? And we go down the what if rabbit trail, right? What, what, what if? Uh, what if I hadn't been late and parked in a better spot? Uh, what if I had a different friendship? Uh, what if I hadn't said that thing that I said? What if, what if, what if? When things aren't going the way we want, we go down this ugly trail of what if, what if, what if? Sometimes it's not the worry. Sometimes it's, frankly, it's just whining. Things don't go the way we want, and we start to say, well, I don't understand why I have this while they have that. I don't understand why I'm still renting while my friends over there have super wealthy parents that gave them their down payment. I don't understand why I still don't have children, and my friends over there have five, and they're terrible parents. We look at our life, and we worry or we whine, or sometimes in an attempt to avoid those things, we just simply try to will ourselves better. You know what? It's fine. Just get over it. And we try to compress our emotions and put them in a little box that you bury deep, 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 uh, but eventually it comes out. The worry, the whining, the willing, none of those ultimately are enduring responses. They are not things we can do for a lifetime. The thing we can do for a lifetime is trust. In unexpected circumstances, in bad circumstances, in good circumstances, we, we say, well, I'm going to trust God. God's in control. I'm in this moment. I was made for this. I think when we hear that as Christians, it, it feels a little bit empty, to, if, if we're being honest, right? That, like, trust. Like, so I'm like, I just try harder. I just, I'm trusting. Like, I, I don't, how do I do that? And one of the things that I think we can do, so there's a, there are many things you can do, but I want to challenge you with one uh, today. I think if we say it out loud, it becomes easier to believe it. If when things are not great, we say it out loud, uh, it becomes a lot easier to believe it. We can say God is in control. We can think God is in control. We can think I was made for this. But when we say it out loud, when we say it to someone or someone says it to us and we're hearing it and we're saying it, it makes it feel 
more truthful. It is truthful already, but it makes it feel more. My son is 18 months old. When he was born, uh, I, one of the things I really wanted to, my greatest goal is I'd like to pass on the faith. My dad is the first Christian in his family. I'm now second generation, and my little boy would be a third generation should he choose to follow the Lord. And one thing that I really wanted was I'm, I want my son to believe. And around that time, I had read uh, a catechism, which was back in the day, they used to pass on the faith to their children, like Christian parents to kids, by making them read and memorize lines. There was questions they would ask, and they had to memorize lines in response. So Heidelberg, day one, question one, which is, what is my only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And then there's two more stanzas, which I, I won't give them all to you. You can look them up. But for basically 18 months, almost every day, I tried every single day, I would say that to my son as I'm putting him down or as I'm getting him up. Isaiah, what is your only comfort in life and death? And then he just stares. He's very bad at responding. Doesn't talk yet. Uh, and then I would say, the answer, son, is my only comfort in life and in death is that I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So for 18 months, I get to say something. And then life is unexpected. I'm 31, and my father just passed away two weeks ago. And when you lose someone, you are tested. So when I say my only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, do I mean it? It is very easy to say when you're holding a baby and the room is quiet and he's falling asleep. But if you practice for 18 months, even when it's not easy to say, you can still say it. This life that we live is not in our control. The government is not in your control. The morality of others is not in your control. And ultimately, you don't choose when you die. The Lord calls you. What you are in control of is your response. And the only response that will carry you through is trust. We should start practicing. If you are not currently in a hard situation, you will be. So you need to say out loud the many reasons that you trust God. I use how to break day one, question one. You can use whatever you want. But you have to start thinking that today. All of life is outside of our control. Desmond Doss's story is unique, uh, but we all face the same kind of thing. And our reaction to that kind of thing ought to be to trust that every, everything we face is in God's hands. Let me pray for us, and then the team will lead communion. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for life and for the reminder from your word that uh, life can be unexpected, that we face things that we obviously did not plan for. Uh, there's so much that is outside of our control. And in the midst of that, Father, in the midst of that uncomfortable, uh, unfair reality, your scripture speaks. And you tell us that you're in control of all things. And you teach us how to live even in a world where we're not in control. So Father, I pray that every single person in this room would be able to take something away today. Uh, and that all of us would be able to trust you more, Lord.
We need your help to do this by your spirit. Help us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from The Shore Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not charge for it. Learn more about The Shore at www.theshorechurch.ca.